Good morning, everybody. I'm so glad you've come for this early morning session. Um, I considered not coming myself, but uh, here we are. So let's spend this time together in a very productive way, exploring this morning God's idea of power. More specifically, I want to spend our time together discovering the power that God has made possible, potentiated, latent in Adventism. So let's pray together as we get started. Father in heaven, Lord, we invite your presence here this morning. We want nothing more than to be led by your Holy Spirit. Father, take charge of my mind, my tongue. Give me the privilege, Lord, to speak effectively and clearly on your behalf. In Jesus' name, amen. As we explore the biblical idea of power, I'm reminded that some truths are best known by contrast to what they are not. So let's begin with an encounter that I recently had personally with an extremely powerful person. The fact is, this individual was considered to be, in history, so powerful that my first encounter with him, that is the historic memory of him, was a life-size painting. And there he was in all his powerful glory. It was King Henry VIII. And I was just standing a couple of weeks ago at Hampton Court Palace. Now that I stood before this painting of this extremely powerful man in a particular wing, a hall rather, of this palace, the audio guide that I was listening to with a very somber and sober voice said, this king had walked this very hall in which you're standing would you have the courage to lift your eyes to meet his? And then there was a dramatic pause, knowing that at will he could lop off your head. And he had, in fact, lopped off many heads, including two of his six wives, right there at Hampton Court Palace. So I was standing in the presence of the memory of a very powerful man. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, as we stood there taking in what was history, out of nowhere, King Henry VIII, well, not himself, but an enactment of him, came out of nowhere. And here was a man pretending to be King Henry VIII, dressed like King Henry VIII, remarkably looking like the painting of him on the wall, and with a commanding and intimidating tone, he pointed to a number of us men who were in the group and commanded us to follow him to his chambers. And so we did. And we found ourselves sitting in a room with the unspoken expectation that we men would all play along with this display of kingly power. He began to describe to us how he was going to take another woman as his wife, but there were certain political maneuvers that must be made for which he needed our support. 
And then, with an intimidating glance, he communicated to us that our heads were at stake if we didn't go along with the political maneuvers that needed to be made in order for him to move out of one relationship into another. And you could just feel, feel the power of this enactment of this ancient king. Well, this is precisely the kind of power, by contrast, that God is not interested in exerting over the world. This was the power of a presence, but that presence conveyed intimidation. This was the power of coercion. This was the power of the force of a larger will over our own and the threat of harm or possibly death if we didn't go along with the program. This is a kind of power, would you agree? This is a power that plays upon our emotions and appeals to our sense of self what? Preservation, Preservation that's right. It, it, it's the power of an intimidating fear. Now, I'd like to suggest to you this morning that if I serve God under the influence of that kind of power, in other words, if I harbor or cherish in my heart a picture of the character of God that has me intimidated before him and serving him or quote-unquote worshiping him or even obeying him out of a sense of obligation and duty because after all he's God and I'm not so I had better or else if my relationship with God is grounded in that kind of power then ultimately I'm not actually serving worshiping obeying God it still at that point is all about who? Me and self-preservation. Now Ellen White does something very fascinating with power in this regard. She talks about the fact in the book Desire of Ages that, and I quote now, it is not the fear of punishment nor the hope of everlasting reward that leads the disciple of Christ to follow him then what power is it? If it's not fear of punishment, if it's not the desire for reward, then what is it that prompts? What's the impetus? What's the motive that God is really appealing to or actually trying to stimulate and recreate within us? She goes on and says, they behold his matchless love in his death on Calvary's cross and the sight of him attracts. Now she very very interestingly uses the word attracts. There's the contrast in this quotation between two we might say kinds of power. On the one hand there is the kind of power that drives by intimidation and fear and then there is the kind of power that what's the word she used again? Attracts. We have to ask ourselves the question this morning and at every juncture of our Christian experience, are we in a relationship with God through Christ that is 
attracting us to him? Is there a voluntary kind of outreaching after God? Or is it merely an exercise in self-preservation, the fear of punishment, or the desire for reward? Because the fact is, as long as I'm serving God because of what I might have threatened upon me, or serving God because of what I might get in the end by way of material goods and the posh and luxurious heaven and eternal life and the streets of gold and all of that, as long as fear of harm to myself or desire of reward to myself is the motive for serving God, then really, I don't love him for who he is. I love him, love is in quote marks here, you understand, for what I might avoid or evade or what I might gain. So at that point, self still occupies the throne of my heart and no actual conversion has occurred. I'm going through what Ellen White calls the motions of appearing or serving God in a way that passes for following him but is in fact avoiding him. I'm going through the external motions of a relationship with God, but no actual relationship of the quality that God is looking for is actually there. So let's look at it this way. God is a God who is operating, listen carefully now, God, the one and only true God, is a power under kind of God, not a power over kind of God. Do you see the contrast there? God is not interested in exercising a power that is imposed from without in order to extract from us, but he's interested in exerting a power from within that produces voluntary love to God. And this is the highest possible form of relationship imaginable. Now, I love the theme for this year's ASI. You've noticed the theme, haven't you? It's time to be about our Father's business. Do you like that? Do you like it? Well, it's from Scripture. You, you, you hear something there, don't you? I don't know if you've recalled or looked up where this is taken from, but it begs the question, if it's time to be about our Father's business, what in fact is our Father's business? What is it that the Father is all about? And in the title, we have here a direct reference to Jesus at a mere 12 years of age, you remember, who had been busying himself in the temple, first encountering the Passover sacrifice for the first time, you remember. Twelve years old, imagine Jesus, the Son of God, God incarnate, standing there watching the sacrificial service. The lamb is slain before him and burned to ashes. And Jesus is looking on, you remember, his omniscience and his omnipresence have been put, as it were, on hold or in remission. He has really become a human being. 
The very scriptures that he has inspired the prophets to write, Mary is now teaching him at her mother's knee. Jesus can't sit under a Jerusalem sycamore tree and reminisce about what it was like with the Father and the angels before he came to this world. No, according to scripture, Jesus in Luke chapter 1 grew in knowledge and in wisdom. He learned things. He said later on of himself, no man knows the day or the hour of the coming of the Son of Man but the Father alone, not even myself. I don't even know the day and the hour when I'll return because Jesus was a real human being now. He was moving through a developmental process and the little boy, 12 years old, he stands there watching the sacrificial service. He's been taught by Mary to that point. No doubt she has walked him through Isaiah 53. And it's dawning on him as he looks at the mysterious service and the sacrifice. It dawns on him, that is me. This is all pointing to my mission and my identity. Now this is important. Because when his parents find him, as he has now encountered his first Passover as a 12-year-old boy, and now he's in among the scholars asking questions and giving answers... When Mary and Joseph finally find him, and they're a little perturbed as parents would be when you're 12 years old and you have wandered off, Jesus said, don't you know that I must be about my father's business? It is in this context, the context of realizing his identity and mission that Jesus says, I'm about my father's business, mom and dad, just so you know, It has begun. It is time. And now something is going to unfold before the world and I'm realizing precisely who I am and what my mission is. Now, his mission, his identity, Jesus unfolds before us and we'll just use the Gospel of John as our main text for this part of our message this morning. In John chapter 1 in verse 14, the scripture says, this is chapter 1 of the Gospel of John, verse 14, the word, speaking of Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. One version says, God moved into the neighborhood, up close and personal. And we beheld, notice, we beheld, not just with physical eyeballs, but with our hearts and minds, we saw something. We realized something in this encounter. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld what, everybody? His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of two things. What are they? Grace and truth. The word glory here is the word throughout scripture and I won't take the time to demonstrate this. It is the word throughout scripture that means, that equates to the character of God. The word means to radiate outward, to shine, to become luminous with whatever the inner content is. Whatever the inner being is about shines forth in Jesus and what is inside of him his precious cargo the content of his heart his mind his thoughts his feelings is the glory or the character of the father so in chapter 1 of the gospel of John when Jesus comes into the world when his feet have landed on planet earth and he has come into real time in human history Jesus is here to get something done he has some business 
He's got some work to do. And according to this scripture, what he has come to do, the business that he's getting down to, is to manifest so that we might behold what precisely? The character of God. Now, in verse 18 of John chapter 1, this theme continues. Watch as it builds. No one, no human being, has seen who? God at any time. But notice, by contrast, the only begotten Son who is in, or has been for all eternity past, in the bosom of the Father. That is a metaphor, a symbol. The bosom is a symbol here for intimate friendship, fellowship with the Father. The only begotten Son who is in intimate fellowship with the Father for all eternity past, notice what it says. With the Father, He has declared Him. So Jesus is on a declaration mission according to the Scripture. He came in the previous Scripture so that we might behold the glory or the character of God. Now, the Scripture says He came to declare something. What has He come to declare? What does the scripture say? Do you got them, have them on the screen? What does he come to declare? The Father. What about the Father? Now you have to remember that there's a backdrop here. When you look at scripture as a whole, you can go all the way back to Genesis and realize that a great controversy has erupted in God's universe. First in heaven with Lucifer laying charges against the character of God. Essentially, Ellen White says that the whole great controversy arose among the angels because of a claim that Satan was making that God does not love others above and before himself. That God is really all about himself and everybody had better, in fear, serve him. Now, when the great controversy comes from heaven to earth... The devil, in Genesis chapter 3, lays out before the human mind a series of propositions. In Genesis chapter 3, the devil formulates what we might call the primal lie. He is called, in the Gospel of John, in chapter 8, the liar. And he has a singular lie to tell. And it is a lie about the character of God. God is arbitrary. God is capricious. God is basically like King Henry VIII. And you had better get your act together because he relates on the premise of intimidation and coercion and fear. That was essentially the lie that Satan told at the launching of his rebellion against God. Now fast forward from Genesis. Fast forward from the beginning of the great controversy where lies are told about the Father. Jesus comes to the world and immediately he goes about the business of what? Declaring the Father. Revealing the truth about the Father in distinct contrast to this psycho-edifice of lies regarding the Father that Satan has palmed off on the human race. Jesus comes from the bosom of the Father to declare the Father. Later on in the Gospel of John in chapter 5 and verse 19, Jesus fills out our understanding of his mission. Watch this. The Son, speaking of himself, can do nothing of himself. But what he sees the Father do. For whatever he, that is Jesus the Son, 
whatever he, excuse me, whatever he, the Father, does, the Son, Jesus, also does in like manner. What has Jesus just said here? He's basically saying, everything that you're beholding in my life, every single episode and interaction with human beings, everything is a revelation of who? The Father. So he's continuing his mission, his business. You come to chapter 14 and verse 9, and Jesus just cuts to the chase. In the previous verses, the disciples, Thomas on this occasion, I believe, no, excuse me, Philip was the spokesperson for the disciples, and he said, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. And Jesus says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. In other words, the theme over and over again, Jesus has come for the express purpose, the business of revealing the truth about the Father, and again the backdrop is, in contrast to the lies that have been told about the Father that have estranged human hearts from God. Listen, God has created us psychologically and emotionally and even biologically in such a way that we're wired for relationship based on freedom and voluntary love. God made us to think and to emote and to behave in such a way that our freedom is preserved but the integrity of a relationship with him comes in tandem with that freedom. God doesn't revoke, he doesn't bypass our freedom in the plan of salvation. He preserves our free will and brings us through, what did Ellen White say? What was the word she used? By attraction, he draws us back to himself. So Jesus is all about this mission of declaring the Father, revealing the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Gospel of John continues. This is fascinating. Jesus now coming to the end of his ministry is summarizing what he's been about. His business that he's been about. He's summarizing and he tells the disciples. He says, hey, chapter 16 of John, verse 25. These things I have spoken to you in what kind of language? Do you have it there? What kind of language, everybody? What kind of language, everybody else? Figurative language, right? Jesus, has he been speaking in parables and stories, figurative language, yes or no? Yes, he has. Jesus says, I've been talking to you all along in figures and parables, but listen, the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language. Now, in the context, Jesus is pointing to the cross here. Jesus is saying all the metaphors all the stories, all the parables, all the figurative language is about to give way to a concrete revelation of who God is in the cross. I've been talking to you in parables. I've been talking to you so far in figurative language, but the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about who? about the Father. Here's his theme again. Everything's going to give way. All the parables and stories give way to a revelation of the Father. Now, he continues in verses 26 and 27, and he tells us precisely what it is that we're to encounter 
in him as a revelation of the Father. In that day, what day contextually? The day when all figurative language is laid aside and a concrete revelation will be given at the cross. In that day, you will ask in my name and I do not say to you that I shall pray the Father for you. We've been approaching Jesus all along through the Father. We pray in Jesus' name. This is called mediation. But now, in simple language, Jesus is taking in the whole scope of our encounter with him at the cross historically and leading straight through our personal experiences right here and right now, where through the revelation of the Father in Christ, we continue to approach him in Jesus' name. Of course we do. But Jesus says, listen, I'm not going to continue to have to approach the Father for you because something has happened. What's happened? He says, and I do not say that I will pray the Father for you. Notice this. This is probably the mountaintop, the climax, the apex of the teachings of Jesus right here in these simple words. For the Father himself loves you. In other words, in the backdrop of this great controversy where relationship with God the Father was broken on the premise of lies about the character of God, which put our hearts in rebellion against him on the premise of these lies, now Jesus comes and reveals the Father, and here he says there's something very precise, something very specific he has come to teach us about the Father. And what is it? The Father himself. Why this emphasis? Why himself loves you? Well, well Jesus has been saying all along, you've encountered me. You, you know that I love you. You've seen me receive the children to my knee and to bless them. You've seen me with the woman at the well and, and encountering one person after another, loving and loving and caring and sympathizing and forgiving. And the woman, you've seen me with the woman caught in adultery. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. You've encountered me. You're about to encounter the zenith revelation of my character and love for you at the cross. But I want you to know, Jesus says here, I want you to know that at every juncture, every step along the way, it's not just me. The Father himself loves you. And all the love and goodness and beauty of character that you're encountering in me is precisely the love and goodness and beauty of character that is in the Father for you. He wants us to build this very, very beautiful psychological bridge between what we see in him and what we see where? In the Father. God the Father is accurately revealed in me, Jesus is saying. Well, then he comes to the cross. He comes to closure, and this is the prayer he prayed right before Calvary, just right before he would go to the cross. And notice this carefully in John 17. Jesus says, he's speaking directly to the Father now, the Father who himself loves us. And he says, Father, this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Do you see that bridge again? Father, eternal life, you and I, Father, we know what this is all about. 
Eternal life is encompassed in them being brought back to a relationship in which they know you and know me as the true revelation of who you are. This is how we're restored. This is how we're saved. Eternal life itself is to know God as God really is, for who God really is. Well, in this context, in verse 4 of John 17, Jesus says, I have glorified you where? On the earth. That's his mission again. What was his mission? To glorify the Father. That is, to magnify the beauty of God's character before human hearts and minds. To reveal to us the true glory of God's character in contrast to the lies that are at the foundation of this great controversy between good and evil. So, Father, I've glorified you on the earth. Notice the language now. I have finished the what? The work which you have given me to do. What is the work, contextually, that Jesus clearly is referring to? We've walked through the Gospel of John, stopping at various junctures along the way, noticing that Jesus, who came from the bosom of the Father, from intimate fellowship with the Father, has come to declare him, to reveal him. He comes to the close of his ministry and he says, listen, listen, all the figurative language needs to give way to a concrete revelation of who the Father is. And when you see this revelation, you will know in your heart of hearts that the Father himself loves you and then he says to the father okay God are done we're done the father has now been revealed the work is finished and then he comes to the cross again in the gospel of John and he hangs between heaven and earth and as he is there pouring out his life's blood for you and me Having loved us, Gospel of John chapter 13, verse 1, having loved us to the end, loved us to the end of himself, revealing beyond all shadow of a doubt in contrast to the lies about the character of God that have formed this maze of confusion in which the world finds itself, in which God is feared rather than loved. Jesus has gotten it done. I've revealed who you really are. Hanging between heaven and earth, he cries out after receiving the sour wine, it is what? It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What is finished? What is the, what is the mammoth, huge, colossal it that is here referred to? Well, we've walked straight through the Gospel of John, stopping at that point along the way where Jesus defined his mission over and over and over again. It is finished means essentially the plan of salvation in principle is fully achieved in me dying on the cross. The revelation of the Father's character is now perfectly revealed in this substitutionary sacrifice of God putting himself in the person of Christ in our place and therefore basically 
showing us, declaring to us, revealing to us that God literally loves you and me more than his own existence. God would rather die forever than to live without you and me. And God, this God of infinite, other-centered, self-giving love, this very God that Jesus came to declare, this God has achieved something astounding and monumental as Jesus dies on the cross. What has he achieved? Jesus, revealing the Father, has shown us beyond all shadow of a doubt that God's love exceeds beyond and transcends all self-interest. And right there, there is a kind of theological, rational, emotional sigh of restful relief. If the most powerful person in the universe, omnipotent, almighty God, the person who literally, with words, can speak worlds into existence, if the most powerful person in the universe, the one who occupies the throne of infinite power, is this kind of God, What peace, what absolute assurance, the illegitimate fear of punishment gives way, the mercenary desire for reward gives way, and you begin to know him as he really is. And in the knowing, something spontaneous, not strained, not forced, something spontaneous begins to transpire in the heart. You begin to love him. You begin to long for him. You begin to appreciate him. Or to use again our opening statement from Ellen White, we begin to be attracted to him. And we find ourselves with Jesus before us on the cross in this sacrificial act of love, we find ourselves under the influence of a power that does not exert itself over, but a power that comes under in service and giving and self-sacrifice and coming under in service, it rises in us like a beautiful new life. It's called being reborn. We're born again. We're converted in that moment before the cross as we realize God's great love for us. And so, the business, referring back to our theme, the business or what Jesus called the work in John 17, that he had finished, the business that Jesus was about was the business of giving the world an accurate portrayal of God's character, revealing the Father's glory. This is the Father's business that he said as a 12-year-old child that he must get about. And this is the business that we, by parallel, as a people, by parallel, to Jesus must be about. 
describing the mission of Adventism, and that's a bold and audacious claim, I understand. But here, we encounter the movement of Adventism in symbolism in Revelation chapter 18 and verse 1. And the language is crucial. I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having what, everybody? Great power. And the earth was illuminated, illumined with his glory. Now, as Seventh-day Adventists, we know historically, we believe historically, and we have the clear testimony of the writings of that modern prophet, that voice among us, Ellen White, that this is an event, an extended, an elongated event, if you will, not a moment in time, but a unfolding of an experience for the world in a final revolution regarding the character of God, we know this is what is referred to by Ellen White as the loud cry which is to be attended by the latter rain. Are you with me so far? This is a prophecy of the final phase of the Advent movement and what will be achieved by that movement. This movement, if we could humbly and not with arrogance grasp the enormity and the privilege of this mission. Now, this angel, this messenger, is depicted as coming down from heaven because there is a message of heavenly origin that is to be given to the world. And this angel comes with, what does it say? Great what? Great power. But notice in the text, notice the source and the nature of this power that is exerted, exerted in the world by the movement. It is the power to illuminate. It is the power of explanation. It is the power of message to convey to the world the glory of God. This movement comes to the world freighted, if you will, with glory. And we, we discovered or we mentioned without looking at the biblical proofs that when we read the word glory in scripture, it is a reference to the revelation of God's what? God's character. This movement, the Advent movement that is here described comes with great power, but it is not a manipulative power. It's not a coercive power. It's not an authoritative kind of power that is exerted over Rather, it is the power of a message that illuminates the dark chambers of human minds and hearts so that the character of God is accurately and clearly known by contrast to a collection of false teachings that have misrepresented the character of God. So in the immediate context here, as the prophecy unfolds, it says this angel, this messenger, this movement of heavenly origin, of prophetic significance that comes to the world with great explanatory power, if you will, this movement that illuminates the world, it's global in its scale, this movement that illuminates the world with the glory of God will produce an effect. And the verses that follow, two, three, four, and on to the end of the chapter describes the fall, the final 
fall of Babylon. And Babylon in this context is a metaphor, it's a symbol for false religion, bad religion. All the religious systems of the world that purport to represent the character of God, but in effect misrepresent the character of God. Babylon is confusion. Babylon is theological confusion. It's rational confusion. It's emotional confusion regarding who God is that is brought to the world in systems of doctrine and teaching that communicate things about God that are patently false and therefore exert a certain kind of intimidating, coercive power over human beings. The doctrines of Babylon can only produce a service to God that is rendered in fear or a service to God that is rendered with desire for reward. But by contrast, the gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to communicate the beauty of God's character in such a way that human freedom is preserved while voluntary love begins to be brought forth. Have you ever wondered why, as a people, why Seventh-day Adventists have what we call a religious liberty department at every level of the church? At the local church level, we have a religious liberty department. The conference level, at the union level, division level, general, we have a religious liberty department. Why? What does that have to do with theology? What does that have to do with our mission as a people? Well, simply, it has to do with the fact that at the base of Adventism and pervasive throughout Adventist doctrine is this idea that God is a God of non-coercive love who's looking for a kind or a quality of relationship with human beings that is voluntary, not coerced or forced. The moment you join either in history past during the Dark Ages or in the final eschatological battle between good and evil, the moment you join church and state together, you have this lethal mix of God and the worship of God with the exertion of civil power, with the exertion of the power of force and coercion under law for self-preservation. The reason we believe in religious liberty is because we believe that God is love in the most beautiful, extreme sense imaginable. We believe that God's love is the only motive that is worthy of a relationship with him in the light of the lofty and incredible and beautiful person that God is. He's not interested in human beings getting on their knees and going through the motions of worship under the threat that no man can buy or sell. He's interested in a relationship that is grounded in liberty that is grounded in freedom preserved and love rendered voluntarily. When Jesus came into our world and revealed the character of the Father, we have before us God's motive. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI 
Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.